Welcome to In Social Work, the podcast series of the University of Buffalo School of Social Work at www.insocialwork.org. We're glad you could join us today. The purpose of In Social Work is to engage practitioners and researchers in lifelong learning and to promote research to practice and practice to research. We educate, we connect, we care. We're In Social Work. Hi from Buffalo. The paper of record has weighed in. The New York Times recently published its recommended 52 places to go in 2018, and that's in the world, by the way. And sitting pretty at number 37 is our fair city, Buffalo, New York. We're glad to see the Times sees things our way. I'm Peter Sabota. Many folks understand that the United States is unique in our willingness to incarcerate are legally involved citizens. What most people might not realize is that women are the fastest growing part of this population with more than one million women involved in some form of the correction system. In this episode, our guest, Dr. Elizabeth Allen, discusses her experiences as a practitioner and researcher exploring the unique needs of women involved in the correctional system and how to promote their successful reintegration into their families and their communities. Dr. Allen describes the importance of focusing not only on the women's individual resources, but also account for the socio-political, structural factors that must be addressed if women are to reconnect with their families and their communities of support. Our guest describes the role of hope, self-efficacy, and empowerment, which are crucial in addressing the structural forces organized against them. These include economic inequality for women, a strong and resilient patriarchy, a lack of decent childcare and affordable housing, systematic disempowerment, and incarcerated women's isolation from each other that prevents them from connecting and establishing a new narrative for their post-incarcerated identity. Dr. Elizabeth Allen, PhD, is a clinician at The Connection Incorporated, one of Connecticut's leading private non-for-profit human service and community development agencies, and is an adjunct professor in the Department of Social Work, University of Connecticut. Dr. Allen was interviewed in December of 2017 by our own Caitlin Beck, a Social Work JD graduate student here at UB, and of course, our fantastic graduate assistant and colleague in the production of the In Social Work podcast. Hello from In Social Work. I'm Caitlin Beck, a graduate student here at the University at Buffalo. I am with Dr. Elizabeth Allen, whose doctoral research was on justice-involved women and redemptive narratives, and who has practiced with justice-involved women for more than 20 years. Thank you so much for joining us, Liz. Thanks for having me, Caitlin. I'm excited. So to start, you worked as an LCSW at Correctional Managed Healthcare, Janet S. York Correctional Institution, providing clinical services in both inpatient and outpatient settings to justice-involved women at a maximum security prison setting. Could you discuss what you did there uh, and the particular needs of the population you worked with? Well, yeah, sure. So I I worked in the state of Connecticut, and in Connecticut, there's only one facility that houses the women. 
So regardless of what you are arrested for or incarcerated for, you end up at this one facility. So this facility houses everybody from youthful offenders, although we raised the age and we don't any longer. But when I first started, we did. So we had youthful offenders, people who were sentenced to 30 days or 45 days, people who were sentenced to life without parole, anybody who had mental health needs, medical needs, you name it. So people who are unsentenced or sentenced. So it operated as a jail and a prison. And so the social workers that were there, myself included, we worked in, I started off on the inpatient mental health unit, providing inpatient psychiatric services and assessments to the women running groups for the chronically mentally ill that were arrested, mostly maybe waiting to be found competent or incompetent to stand trial. And then they would go to the psychiatric hospital, state hospital, if they were found incompetent. And so we did crisis services. And as the years went on, the services uh, increased and progressed. Like when I first started, I was one of three, I believe. And when I retired in 2014, after 21 years, almost 21 years, there was, I believe, 14 of us on first shift and second shift and weekends as well. And so we worked in multidisciplinary teams, providing intake assessments, crisis management, and then there was a number of programs that we offered. There was a trauma-informed residential program. There was a, like I said, the mental health program as well, inpatient, and then all outpatient and running groups. And I also created a, a very unique program. Uh, we named it called Sister Standing Strong. The women actually named it. And it was a peer mentoring program because the last, I don't know, probably eight or 10 years, my housing assignment was on the assessment unit, which when the women first come in is one of the highest stress, you know, times of their, of their incarceration. And so I created this program because I said to my boss one day, you know, it's one thing I can sit there and tell them, you know, it's going to get better. It's not always this difficult, but it would be so much more powerful if it came from the women themselves. And he said, write it up. So that's why I always tell my students, you know, if you have an idea, you know, don't be afraid to sit on it, you know, and or just stand up and say something. And so I just wrote up a very simple proposal. And because it was corrections, it did take a lot of selling in the custody environment. People are very hesitant to change. And we were always reminded that safety and security was first. And so I created this program that we trained the women to be group providers and mentors. And so eventually we were spread out more across the prison, but it was predominantly on the assessment unit. So when the women first came in, and if you think about when you first would get arrested just on a random Tuesday, perhaps, and there, you know, it was very stressful. Who's going to pay my rent? Who's going to feed my dogs? Who's going to get my kids off the bus? Am I going to be here for a long time? Am I not going to be here for a long time? So it was an extremely stressful time. And so we used to do just these very basic support groups. And the women would run them, not the social workers. And they would provide support and inspiration and share with the women that not too long ago, they too were in that position and how they were thriving and doing well and and that program, I'm proud to say, is still running strong even after my departure. So I think that's, you know, pretty basically what we did there at the prison. That's amazing. You did a lot of really <laughs> incredible things. Was there overlap in some of maybe the women who were participating in trauma-informed mental health group going into the Sister Standing Strong group? Did they take what they were learning and apply it? Or could you speak to that at all? Yeah, so I, I mean, I definitely, we started to think that originally the program was 
about the services offered, right, to the women that were there. But I think after a while, it became very clear that it was not only about the services, right, but it was also, you know, I was calling it like reciprocal rehabilitation, right, because it was both, it was good for both people. So the women who were the mentors, but we have a lot of people who suffer from trauma and substance abuse and all these other things and think, you know, and especially in such an oppressive environment like a prison where they would feel like I'm nothing, I'm nobody, why would anybody want to listen to me? You know, and so being put in a position where they felt like they had something to offer and they could support other people, I think is very powerful and very healing. And so the women who were part of the mentoring program and became mentors, right, it was really good for them as well, you know, as well as the services that were needed and offered to the women in the assessment units and throughout the other housing units. That's really, really incredible. And I, I'm just wondering too, what were the consequences of having this this place be a jail and a prison? Were there complications that were added because of that unique feature? Yes, I think it definitely adds an added layer to some of those the thing. And I think in, even in terms of any programming that is offered, there can be, you know, definitely some barriers to that. So some of the things that are offered inside the prison, right, are really good. We have college courses. They might have a GED, you know, prep class. So there's a lot of things that go really good things that go on within the school system. And then there's because we know that we incarcerate high rates of substance abusers in this country, right, they might have AA or NA. There's parenting groups or sometimes they'll do like an anger management or, right, so they offer a lot of programs, but if unfortunately, if you're not sentenced, that's one of the limitations. Think about it. If you're going to be there and you say, oh, yes, I'm going to be here for six months, I know it, but then you go to court next week and they say, oh, you're going to get probation instead, then you're out. And so they would try to limit that. But unfortunately, because of the system, sometimes if people could stay unsentenced for weeks, months, even years, depending on their charges. And so then they would be prohibited to even start any of those programs because they were technically unsentenced. And then on the other end, we'd have women who were sentenced to 10 years and trying to wrap their mind around that and figure out how to live with that and right adjust to that. And then the person next to you is whining and complaining, as the women would say, right, that they're, you know, they're, they have to be here for 45 days or they, or they need to get home or, or, you know, one of the complaints that I would hear from the long-termers, I have to be here for 10 or 15 years and then I have to be around people who are saying they can't wait to go home next week and get high or get drunk. Or, so they would be saying I would give anything to have the opportunity to go home to my children and then there's those women who are just looking to get out and repeat some of their same patterns 10 days from now. So the mixing of those can bring a whole host of different issues, either structural or programmatic, but also among the women. Yeah, those are issues I wouldn't even imagine because I don't often think of jails and prisons being mixed. Thank you for speaking to that. Could you, you've already mentioned some aspects of this, but maybe we could talk more about the unintended consequences of mass incarceration for women and maybe the implications for social work. I think this is a, you know, a very significant issue. There are lots of unintended consequences. And I think it's easy in a society that is on a paradigm sort of punishment. So it's a criminal justice system. And so it's about who deserves to be punished or have to do their time. And But we know that putting people, separating people, isolating people for long periods of time doesn't work. But yet we 
haven't quite figured out another way. And so we just kind of keep doing it over and over again. And so unfortunately, there's lots of these unintended consequences. So, you know, what the research shows is that people who have connections, community connections, family connections, connections with their children, that they all tend to do better. They all tend to reintegrate back into community, right? Be more successfully integrated into their communities in terms of maybe employment or housing or things like that. And when we just lock people up, we sort of sever all of those ties and just make it more difficult for them. And so with women, we know that the majority of women at the time of their arrest usually have partial custody and mostly full-time custody a lot of times. And so then we have the unintended consequences of their children. So either the children witnessing them being arrested or their house being raided, which can be very traumatic to the children, but then also being separated from their parents and not understanding those consequences. So then that trickles down right into schools and it trickles down into your DCF or, you know, Department of Children and Families or whatever your state calls it. So most of the children that are in DCF because their parents have addiction and if they have addiction, then they end up in criminal justice system. Poverty is a really difficult aspect in a lot of these things. So we have people who are underemployed or unemployed and undereducated or uneducated. And then the more we isolate them, we've now increased their difficulties in reintegrating back, finding employment. These are marginalized groups for the most part. And then it's very difficult for them to, we just tell them to get out of jail, find a job, do the right thing and, you know, and don't come back. And unfortunately, not that easy. Obviously, if it was that easy, we wouldn't have the problems that we have. And we see all of these unintended consequences that go into communities, into schools, DCF, and not to mention the pathways to prison for most women includes a history of trauma either sexual trauma, physical violence, and definitely substance use and mental health. And so some of these oppressive systems, as well as as the policies and procedures that are in place, will often re-traumatize many of these women. So we take their symptoms that they're already struggling with, right, and we sort of compound them. And I think one of the things that I was extremely interested in as well is the effect on communities. And so again, we know that there's over-policing in marginalized communities and poor communities, so most of the arrests and incarcerations will come from one zip code or, or one area in a city or a state. So we know that those people kind of get recycled through back and forth in those same communities. And so then it really just further denigrates these already marginalized communities. There's some studies that show that sometimes up to half of the male population between the ages of 20 and 35 in one marginalized community will be away from the community at any given time, and then they just get recycled through. So that's already a, a disorganized community, and then you might dump other these people back from the criminal justice system back into this already marginalized community, and which then further destabilizes it. So then we have increased crime, increased vandalism, just sort of over and over again. And so it really impacts not only the individuals and families, but also the communities in which we have these issues. How do we remedy this? Like, how do social workers and criminal justice, the criminal justice system come together, you know, to create a different system? Like, what do you see that would help us do that? Yeah, I think this work can be very, I find myself very overwhelmed at many times. I think the social work profession has recently 
made a concerted effort to insert ourselves into the criminal justice system because I think our voice has been fairly silent in this field for way too long. So one of the grand challenges of the social work profession is smart decarceration, which is how do we sort of work on this system or dismantle this system? And so they've tried to break it up because it's like, where do you begin, right? Do, do we start in schools and in child welfare and try not to feed the criminal justice system, right? So stop them from entering. Or do we work with the individuals who are there once they're there? So like during incarceration, or do we put our efforts after incarceration and helping people to reintegrate successfully and create successful lives after incarceration. So I think that the social work profession and academics across the country have been trying to work on each area, either pre, during, or post. But I think it, you know, it is very overwhelming because we can't fix one without the other. We, we can't fix the criminal justice system if we don't properly fund our educational systems and give the resources to the communities or treat our mental health and addiction differently if we don't, you know, it's like we have to ask ourselves, what if? What if we lived in a society where we didn't criminalize substance use or addiction, right? Our criminal justice system might look very differently. So it is very overwhelming. And I think when I was doing my dissertation research, it took me a really long time, probably a year, to really sort of structure the study because I, I, I didn't want to continue to feed the system that I have such a hard time with and sort of understanding it. And I provided treatment with the incarcerated population and it was the most rewarding work I have ever done. And I actually just recently went back into practice with the same population, but in the community because I did miss my clinical work with this population. But I also then wonder how, as a social worker, am I sort of condoning this system and saying that I'm okay with it because I, I'm not. <laughs> I don't, there's many people that, most people I think that should not be in prison. You know, I am an abolitionist. I, I would teach the women that I worked with that I was an abolitionist, but I've been told, you know, many times that I'm sort of an oxymoron and how can I work in a system that I don't believe should exist. So I think it's very overwhelming. I think there's so many pieces to it. And I think it's very difficult. I don't think we can fix the system with the same mind and the same oppressive paradigm that created the system. And so I, I do feel like sometimes we just need to blow up the system from the ground up and start again, because to, little, to do some social change at little pieces at a time, I think is, is what we're all trying to do, but I think it's going to take a long time. Yeah, that was really helpful to map out the before, the during, the after. And it sounds like you're kind of working, you were working before in the during, like while they were in the system, and now you're working right. more so in the after. Was, yeah. So my research was how do women successfully create lives for themselves, right? After incarceration, what are the factors that will help them to do that? So I am very interested in that. And so this job that I just started as a clinical social worker in the community is, is that it is after. So working with people who maybe had done time and then are now out and on probation or parole and their probation officer or parole officer feels that they need mental health or substance use. So, so they will come in for treatment. But also it is also pre because 
in Connecticut, and I think you know most states are slowly getting there of trying to, they have jail diversion programs, and so trying to divert people, they will refer before. So if you get arrested perhaps for domestic violence or something that, and then they feel that you have a mental illness or substance abuse problem, and if you don't have a long record, then the judge will say, okay, as long as you go to treatment, or, you know, so they'll be either put on probation or they'll be part of this pre-sentencing where as long as they complete the requirements of the court or through this agency and abstain from using drugs or follow the regulations of the court or probation, then the case after six months and they don't get arrested, their case will be dropped. So I do work with that population as well. So you're with all of them, the before, the during and the after. That's amazing. Yeah. Could you, this maybe seems like a good time to talk about the difference between recidivism and desistance. Yeah, sure. I know most people are familiar with recidivism, right? And that's sort of what we, it's a standard measure. Did the person recidivate or not? I personally have many issues and try not to use that word because I think it's very limiting. And I, and I do think this came out of my many years in clinical practice with the women because the women would come in and like I mentioned earlier, we would do their assessments on intake. And so the women would come in and they would say, I know to hear all these stories, they would say, I can't believe I'm back here. I left here five years ago. It was the first time ever in my life I had a job. I bought a house. I got married. I, my kids were, you know, got back with me. I have been living, you know, in recovery and I'm clean and now I'm back here and I can't believe I'm back here. And so I used to always say to the women, because you're here, right, there's no equal sign. It doesn't mean that all of that work that you have done is all undone. But that's what a recidivism study sort of does. Or if we just look at, did you go back to jail? Yes or no. So it's a dichotomous variable, right? It's just yes or no. And so I think there's so many variables that get lost if you just put it in a yes and no. So some people will say, yes, they came back to jail, but like that story that I just shared, right, they had accomplished all of those other things. And so we don't really look at that. And maybe they came back, and a lot of times this was the case, they came back because an old warrant popped up. Like literally they did not even do anything to get a new arrest. It's just some old warrant that from years ago that never got caught in the system or whatever, and so then they got arrested. Or, yes, they used to get arrested for burglary and drug possession, and right? And now this time they got arrested because they had a fight. Or a lot of times people will be given uh, three strikes from their probation officer or parole officer. And if they give three dirty urines, then they'll come back. So yes, they were out there and doing really well for them. And, but they were still struggling with addiction or relapsed. And so then they came back to jail. And so I think the difference between that and desistance is like any other change process, you know, desistance is looking at the process of change and how people change. It's not just yes or no. There's no just quick end. Most people, when they start quit smoking, most people don't just wake up one day and say, that's it. I'm not going to ever have another cigarette. And then they never do. There are some people who are able to do that, but the majority of people will sort of quit for six weeks, then smoke again, then quit maybe for eight weeks, then, you know, quit again. And so that's sort of the same. Desistance really looks at the process of how people move out of criminal lifestyle. And so we understand that there's a lot of variables at play, right? So it might be employment or it might be family. It's definitely, you know, a majority of the time addiction. 
And so they might have a lot of the other pieces at play and they're just working on one issue. So maybe it's the first time they have a job and they're connected to their family. And right. So there's a lot of things that are really going well, you know, but they're still struggling with addiction. Again, it also is, I feel like sometimes it is also a measure of the level of policing in their community. So people, you know, who live in marginalized communities where there's over-policing, they're, they're more likely to recidivate or just go back to, to jail as opposed to people who live in, you know, less policed communities. And so desistance is really looking at that larger process and how people change. There's two levels to desistance. So it, it is much more nuanced and looks at some of the socio-political context that people exist in, which I think is a more natural measure. The problem is it's really understudied and we don't really exactly understand it. And so people have been trying to sort of define it. But, you know, there is this definition that there's two levels to desistance, right? There's two phases. And the first one is that people are not engaging in criminal activity. And so we know that people may not engage in criminal activity for lots of different reasons, right? So many times if they get out and they're on probation or parole, they may not engage in criminal activity because they're being monitored or maybe they have an ankle bracelet, like that sort of monitoring. So they're not engaging in criminal activity. So that's the first step. And that's, and I always tell the clients, right, that's really good that you're not engaging in criminal activity. But the second phase of desistance is really is like the next level and it's a deeper level and it's that they're actually creating change at an internal level. So they're changing their identity. They no longer see themselves as an inmate or a felon. And so it's just it's not that they're not engaging in criminal activity. It's that they have sort of shifted and created a new story for themselves they are mother or a hairdresser or right and it's, so it's kind of like the same thing as as recovery it's like we have people who just stop using drugs or alcohol and that's great that's one part but then the other part is are they actually living in recovery and doing all of the steps and things that go with it so desistance is you know sort of like that Interesting. Thank you for making that difference. It seems like talking about recidivism really perpetuates some of the problems we've been talking about, whereas talking about desistance could solve a lot of problems. It It's not just good or bad. It's about small steps instead. And you make one small step closer to a healthy life versus a bad life or a good life, right? Yes. Yeah. So speaking of these two terms, what are the individual and structural factors that assist or hinder women in creating successful lives after incarceration? Maybe this is one of them, the language we use, but what are some others? So there's many. So people are, are again, trying to study more and better understand the desistance process. So there's different schools of thought out there. So some people look at other measures like the variables that I looked at were the internal structural factors about themselves, who they are. You know, many of the theories guiding recidivism or criminal justice reform tend to be very deficit-based, you know, and as social workers, I think, right, we like to focus on strengths. You know, I think some of the structural pieces are the ones that I alluded to. So poverty, unemployment or underemployment, lack of education, right? Any lack of programming that are going to assist the women in being able to take advantage of some of the programs. I know I, after I left the prison, I joined a 
reentry, a community reentry roundtable, which had brought together these amazing people from the community who were doing work in the community. And so they were nonprofits or churches or, you know, even state agencies. And so we had started, our state had started uh, the Second Chance Initiative and had made some great strides in bringing together vocational trainings at local community center or community colleges, but they also then had the connections to employers because a lot of times people will have the training, individuals will get trained, but then nobody will hire them. And so the the state of Connecticut tried to create one less barrier so that the vocational, the employers were already connected and willing to part through this training and then hire them at the end of it. And so it was great, all this was going on. And so I raised my hand and I said, well, is childcare offered? And everybody was like, oh no, great, right? That's a great program. The They would take part of this training uh, program. It was intensive, like eight weeks, eight to 4.30. They also got a very small stipend. So, uh, you know, $100 for the week to attend. So all of those things are really good. There are barriers to that. Like not everybody can live on $100 a week. So it really it was only for people who maybe had a place to live or stay, right? So they had family supports already in place that then they could go to this training. And for women, like I mentioned earlier, most women have full custody of their children. Most women would not be able to attend 8 to 4.30 for six weeks, Monday through Friday, if childcare was not included. And so I think because criminal justice is thought to be mostly about men and employment, those are the programs that we put into place. And we know that for women, vocation and employment and individual stability is very important, but it's not one of the key factors that will help people to create successful lives for themselves. Programs that are not gender informed can sort of leave out a segment of the population. Poverty, over-policing in marginalized communities, all of those things are structural issues. And then the individual factors, one of the things that I wanted to look at in my study, especially was, you know, because we just tell everybody, you can do it, you know, just get out, do the right thing. And so the individual factors that I looked at were like their level of hope or their level of self-efficacy or their level of empowerment. And I think all of those are key factors. We all, you know, take those things for granted. We were able to come across a barrier and keep at it, keep going. That, that persistence that is very important for us to create successful lives for ourselves. But when we have individuals who've been part of this oppressive system and they're in a system that tells them not to be self-sufficient and not to be empowered, I always say that the most empowered individuals in the prison system are the ones who end up getting into trouble very frequently because they can stand up for themselves and they'll say, this is not right. And then they end up being placed in restrictive housing or segregation. They get themselves in trouble because they are empowered. That was, was my goal to sort of help them to channel that empowerment because empowerment is what's going to help people to succeed when they get out. But yet the system doesn't appreciate that in a system that just tells them they just need to shut up, put your head down, do your time, do what you're told. That makes a good 
inmate, but it doesn't make a good re-entering, returning citizen because you're, you're not going to get anywhere if you just put your head down and follow along. For my study, I looked at their level of hope, their le- level of self-efficacy, and their level of empowerment. And I wanted to know if those individual factors would also be impacted by the structural barriers. So I looked at things like childhood poverty. So the women who grew up in childhood poverty and if they grew up in disadvantaged, you know, marginalized communities. And so one of the measures I looked at was their community that they spent their childhood in. And if there was graffiti and trust among neighbors or not, or they felt safe and, th- and those kinds of things. And if that impacted their individual factors. But I think perhaps in research now, and one of the, the measures that I looked at was identity. And so that's where some of the research is showing now that if we as social workers can help people to create a pro-social identity and helping them to, as you mentioned earlier, Caitlin, so, you know, shifting the language is important, right? And so what do we call people when they've left prison, right? It's like inmate, felon, druggie, addict, geeker, whatever, you know, we have lots of names for this population. Labeling and language is really, really important. And identity, Sally, it only takes one act to become labeled an inmate, a felon, how many acts does it take to unearn that label? So we could do one act to get labeled a felon or an inmate, and then you could do 500,000 positive actions, but you never undo that that label. A lot of the research is showing that identity is really important, and that's one of the things that helps people to move out of criminal lifestyle or desist from crime, is that they're able to shift their internal narrative and their internal identity and say, I am a good person, a good woman, a mother, I am a good worker, and have all of those identities and separate their identity out from their actions. If you engage in criminal activity, that's your behavior, but it's not who you are at your core. The two identity measures that my study looked at was if they identified as persistent offender, and if they identified at their core of who they were as a career criminal. And you know, even just some of the findings in that were very interesting in that a great majority of the women said, yes, I'm a persistent offender. However, even though all of those people said, I'm a persistent offender, when asked if at their core who they were meant to be, they were a career criminal, the majority of them said no, right? And a few said, I'm not sure. I think I had like 12 who said, I'm not sure. And only four women, I had 141. Out of the 141, I only had four women who said yes. Like, at my core, I am a career criminal. And so I think in trying to understand what that data tells us, right, is that the women who are able to separate out their behavior, so persistent offender is kind of like a court label. It's like they'll say, yeah, I'm a persistent offender. I have, you know, a shoplifting or larceny over and over again. So it's kind of like a label, again, about their behavior, But a career criminal and at their core, more like their identity of how they see themselves. Even if they said, yes, I'm a persistent offender, then they said, no, but I'm not a career criminal. You know, those are good signs. Those are, we know that people who are able to to separate out 
their behavior. So people who are able to say, yes, I'm a really good person at my core, but I have engaged in behavior that's not lawful and behavior that I'm not proud of, that they tend to do much better in, in terms of creating successful lives for themselves. So as social workers, would our, our task be to help people channel on what they already know, like channel what they already know about themselves? Is that something that we like can help us? Because I, I, I'm just thinking that when we do that, the criminal justice system, as we already talked about, does the exact opposite. I'm just thinking, how do we help remind them of what they know about themselves, that they're not a criminal, that they're a mother, that they're a daughter, that, you know, whatever they are, when you have a different system telling them they're just a criminal? Yeah, it's very complicated, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, nice to tell my supervisor, you know, I, I can do my, I could go into a group room and shut the door and do all of this great empowering. You know, I tried to do all of my groups and individual work from a strength-based perspective and empowerment. And I said, but when they open the door and they go out into the system and the system tells them, you know, shut up, you're nothing but a number, you're not, you know, nobody loves you, you're going to, you know, we, we have this philosophy, we'll leave the light on for you, you know, meaning that there's no hope that you're ever going to get better, you're just going to come back here. And then we're, we're surprised or we act surprised when that happens. That's where it gets really super complicated. So I think on a micro level, yeah, I mean, I think working with individuals, working with families, working with children on an individual level, on a micro level is super, super important. But, and I always said I would never even retire from my job because I loved it. And, and I think I was, years went on, I realized that the micro level and working on individual level, right, wasn't enough, that there are also these structural issues and barriers that we really need to work on. But I think one of the things that we know from the literature and from studies, right, is that peer support and family support is really, really important. And so I think on a micro level, if, you know, if we, we need to change policies on a macro level, but I think for social workers working in addiction, especially DCF or, you know, child welfare, that keeping those connections is what's going to help your family to heal. And I think, again, that system is also set up and, well, you know, the mother's in jail. I'm not going to, you know, this kid, I'm not going to bring this kid to the prison. And, you know, I think every situation is different and I think every family needs to be assessed. But I think if we understand that by keeping that contact, phone contacts, mail contact, and visit is all very, very helpful. It's helpful for the incarcerated person and it's helpful for their reentry. We know that people who have those connections do better. And so I think some of those things are really important. Then the, the sort of meso level is about visitations. And because I mentioned that it's the only prison in the state for women. So if you are close, then that's helpful. But if you're on the other, and our state is small compared to many other states, but even if you're on the other end, you could be easily two or three hours away from your mother or your family. And so that those transportation can be very, and again, if we're incarcerating marginalized people, right, then we know that they don't have transportation or they don't have cars. And I, that was one of the measures that I had in um, like a social support, social capital measurement was if they felt supported while they were there and if they received visitation. And so some of those variables were, were correlated with some of the other measures. When I asked them about how they felt their chances were when they left here. And that was correlated to whether they had visits or not visits. And so I think those are things that we need to remember, right? So that visitation and phone calls are really important. Again, the policies. So for the longest time, the prison system was set up so that you could not call cell phones. You could only call landlines. And 15 
years ago, that was okay. But as we move forward, who has a landline? I mean, I do, right? But not very many people do. And especially people who are living in poverty or struggling to make ends meet, they don't have a cell phone and a landline because they can't afford it. So the system needed to change that and to address that. So then it finally did a few years ago, it switched so that you could call cell phones. Then there's these organizations and companies that are getting rich off of our high incarceration rate, 15 minute phone call to the other end of the state is, you know, could run a family $40, $50. And again, when you're trying to make ends meet, that's not feasible for many, many families and most of the people that we incarcerate. And so we need to have prove that less expensive phone calls and less restrictions on family visitations. Because if your family has a history of incarceration, it might be your father or your mother, and they're the biggest support for you that's going to help you when you get out and they can't come and visit you because they had a arrest, you know, five or 10 years ago, and they're not going to be allowed into the system. And so some of those policies really need to be examined because if they're, if we truly want to help people when they get out, we have to understand that those people that have those connections are the ones that are, that are going to be able to successful lives for themselves when they, when they leave. There's just so many different aspects to it. There's so many different pieces to think about. Well, we're wrapping up our conversation, and I wanted to know if there was anything else that you wanted to add today. So when I talk to social workers, I think everyone who maybe thinks that criminal justice is not in your realm, I think really to ask yourself, because I think that the social work profession, because we are so diverse and and our job descriptions and fields of practice are so vast that I think you can't operate in uh, a social work perspective, right, and not be involved in the criminal justice system. And I think when we operate in this paradigm of punishment, it's really easy to sort of cast aside this us and them or this other, you know, oh, only those bad people, you know, go to prison, you know, and so I think to really ask yourself, you know, how is your job impacted by the criminal justice system? And is there anything that you can do to sort of help to shift our societal view of the role of punishment and incarceration? We tend to, it's easy to cast people in a dark light and say, well, you know, those people, they don't deserve, you know, many times you hear people say, oh, you know, you work in a prison, you know, oh, they do yoga in a prison. I want to go and be in prison and get free yoga. I have to pay for my yoga, right? But it's, we have to really ask ourselves, you know, do we want people, most 98% of anybody who gets arrested or incarcerated is is going to be back out into the community. We do know that most of them leave. And so, you know, you ask yourself, who do you want out, you know, living next to you or working with you, right? Somebody who is healthy and rehabilitated and getting support and services or somebody who the system has decided is, decided is unworthy and has thrown away because they're eventually they're going to be out in our communities. Those are really great points. Thank you so much, Liz, for everything today. Thank you for all the work you're doing and the research you're doing. There is a lot for us to chew on. Thanks for having me. It's, I love to talk about the stuff. I could talk about it all day. You've been listening to Dr. Elizabeth Allen discuss women and mass incarceration on In Social Work. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We look forward to your continued support of the series. 
for more information about who we are as a school, our history, our online and on-the-ground degree in continuing education programs, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. And while you're there, check out our Technology and Social Work Resource Center. You'll find it under the Community Resources menu.